Good evening, everybody. We are going to get started. It's 8 o'clock. I want to welcome everyone who is here in the Rabbi that. Samuel oh. Chill Sanctuary What's for this on? wonderful teaching and conversation with Alana Steinhain. want to welcome our friends who are joining us on live stream. I wanted to frame Alana's conversation tonight this way. I've been thinking about the fact that everyone here, 100% of the people here, have in a very deep and profound way that has graced literally every day of your life, you've all, we've all won the lottery. The facts and circumstances of our birth, where we were born, when we were born, we have all won the lottery. And the crazy thing is, the fortunate circumstances and happenstance of our birth, which has shaped every single day since then, we so often don't even think about it. But two things have made me think about it. One, I'm very deeply thinking about Abraham Joshua Heschel, whose 50th yort site is this month. He died on December the 23rd, 1972. And he was born at the worst time and in the worst place that any Jew could have been born, 1907, in Poland, which meant that his mother and three sisters perished in the flames. 90% of his people, Polish Jewry, perished in the flames. And all of us are born post-Shoah. We read about it, but we didn't go through it. And our mother and sisters, and 90% of our people weren't perished in the flames. Second, I'm reading and totally obsessed with um, Danny Gordis's excellent one-volume treatment of Israel. And he has this really poignant chapter about 48, the founding of the states. Chapter 8, it's called Independence. And he tells the following story, that there was a, a significant group of people who survived Hitler. And then after surviving the camps, they go to a Cyprus, to a DP camp. And then after the DP camp, they go to Israel, and the state's independence is declared, and right away they fight a war, and so many of them lost their lives. So what's their lives? Their lives are Hitler, DP camp, Nochemet HaShikror, dead. Now, we won the lottery because for no good reason of anything that we've done, just pure grace of where and when and how we were born, we, we're here now into our adulthood in 2022, 75 years from Muhammad HaShikur. And what is it therefore that we, what's our response? If you care about the Jewish story, and if we read about that sacrifice, but we didn't have to do that sacrifice, what is our response? It feels to me like we owe three things. Number one, to never give up on the Jewish people and on Jewish peoplehood. To never give up on the Jewish homeland, Jewish state, the state of Israel. And to never give up on the Jewish future. That is the obligation to transmit a love of Israel and a love of the Jewish people and Jewish homeland to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, right? Don't give up on our people, don't give up on our homeland, don't give up on our future. Now, what do we do when we are the troubled committed and we are concerned about what's happening in Israel for obvious reasons? So one whole response, and, and notable rabbis, notable synagogues take this response, which is Israel's just too hot to handle. There are notable rabbis, excellent rabbis, luminary rabbis, who don't talk about Israel in their congregation because it's too divisive or divisive or divisive or divisive. It's divisive, <laughs> it's divisive. Let's call the whole thing off. And they don't talk about Israel. And that makes sense if all you want to optimize on is peace. But it doesn't make sense if you want to optimize on not giving up on our people and on our homeland and on connecting the story to our next generations. And if we're not talking about Israel, we're gonna get disconnected from Israel. 
And if we're not thinking about Israel and all of its complexities, then we're going to lose the vocabulary and the facility to engage Israel and its more complexities. Talking about Israel is like any muscle. Use it and you strengthen it. Don't use it and you lose it. And if we lose it, our children and grandchildren lose it. So I just want to thank Hartman because Hartman has given us a way to deal with all the, all, every person here has got troubles with what's happening in Israel. There's nobody here who's loving Ben Gavir. There is nobody here who's loving Shmutrik. There's nobody here who thinks that calling himself a proud homophobe and seeing LGBTQ is like running a red light. Nobody here is loving this, obviously. And now the question is, um, how do we talk about it in ways? And, and Hartman's genius here is to convert the disquiet that we all feel into curiosity, into learning, into listening, and into a prism of Jewish values and Jewish texts that can help us transmit our story to ourselves and to our future. Alana, no one's better at this than you. Thank you. Thanks. Wow, 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 wow. I think I'm supposed to give you this. Okay, so uh, first of all, I, I don't think I could have um, just setting the stage in that way, Rabbi Garden Schwartz, I think really prepared us for what we're here to do, which is we're not going to solve and resolve. We're not going to advocate in the sense of, well, everything will be okay. What we're gonna do is we're gonna think together. We're gonna be curious. We're gonna consider possibility. And we're also gonna recognize that as with any adaptive challenge, as Israel's challenges are, as any countries are, it's a long road ahead. And anyone who is invested has to be invested for the long haul. But I want to start with a true story, which is I was looking at, um, this is a very funny thing that I see in my, just I book someone's tickets. Um, the, I want to start with a true story, which is I was looking, I was uh, booking my Uber, but I had to look where Temple Emanuel is um, located this evening. And there were a bunch of Temple Emanuels that came up. And then I clicked on this one and it said, my Temple Emanuel. That's what it said. And I said, what, did that actually just happen? I looked back. That is definitely how I feel about Temple Emanuel, about its leadership, about the people here. I have studied with many of you. We have a wonderful board member and her better half, right? who's here, and uh, we really appreciate that you're our interlocutors um, and supporters in this work because it's very countercultural kind of work. So I want to start with the question of what is religion for? Let's say religion is to have a relationship with God. That's a purpose of religion. To inculcate humility in individuals and in communities. To shape a good society. To give a sense of purpose. Let's say we all agree that this is what religion is for writ large. But those are the easy things. Those are the easy theses. What about the harder questions about religion? Like, I'll give you one. To what extent is religion about connecting humanity across difference? And to what extent is religion about differentiating people and saying, you're not me and I'm not you, and these are our differences? On a global scale, we could ask, to what extent is religion about particularism me, my group, my tribe, to what extent is religion about universalism, building bridges? How much should religion demand and challenge people's beliefs, and how much should religion just be shaped by what people already think and what they already believe? What kind of duties does religion give you? What kind of rights does religion give you? Those are actually the harder questions. And those are the questions that we see being navigated in Israel right now when it comes to questions of religion. I'm bringing this up because I'm a person who's very saddened about the role that religion is playing in how the elections worked out in Israel. I am a person, and I will tell you quite proudly, who was educated by American religious Zionist movements. 
member of B'nai Akiva, went to their camps, worked at their camps, studied at a religious Zionist seminary for my year before college and remained connected to it, have many deep relationships in the religious Zionist community in Israel. And I watched over the last month as a party called Religious Zionism brought Itamar Ben-Gvir, a Kahanist, into power, among other things. And I look at this and I say to myself, this is a real problem for the character of Israeli society, and it is a real problem for religion. When religion is used as a tool of hate and violence, that is a problem for the society in which that happens, but it is a problem for anyone who connects to religion. And I'm not naive. I know plenty of people voted for certain parties because they were worried about security concerns. I know. And in fact, I would never dare be arrogant enough to suggest that I understand what those concerns feel like because I don't. I don't walk out of my house in Manhattan tomorrow, tomorrow and worry that, God forbid, my children will get blown up on a bus. I don't worry about it. So I don't know what that's like. But that doesn't dampen the results because the results are the same. I also am not naive about religion. I think it is perfectly legitimate to suggest that the more traditional, and I'm a pretty traditional observant Jew myself, the more traditional you go, the more likely you're going to see conservatism. That's not a wild suggestion. And yet, at the same time, there's something that passes a threshold of conservatism to indecency. And I have to say that an extreme, whether it's on the right or on the left, extreme ideologies meet at the point of indecency. They meet at the point of intolerance. They meet sometimes at the point of potential violence. They meet at the point of polarization. And so tonight, what I'd like to do is I'd like to spend a little bit of time reclaiming religious language, not in order to be hyper-particularistic, not in order to assert our rights to the land of Israel and to this and to that and the other, but actually to talk about what is a religiously aspirational approach to some of Israel's problems. And me talking about this in Boston, it almost, does it matter? Maybe. In a way, it matters because for people who are connected to religion, you're going to open your humash and you're going to read certain verses. And those verses, you're going to say, oh, I kind of see where those other people on the other side get it from. It's right here, right? And you need to know how to think. But what I want to do tonight that I think makes the conversation that much more important, both for the people in the room and for the people who are watching on live stream, is that I want to look at a few Israeli thinkers today who are bucking the trend of religion as a force for violence and rights and are pushing for religion as a force for peace and duties to the other. Because as American Jews, to be able to understand who's working on this from the inside I think puts us in a position of being interlocutors with people whose values we can appreciate instead of just observing and waiting and critiquing and worrying and not knowing what to do. So I want to start with a basic premise, okay? Here's my basic premise, and I don't think that it's um, going to be a controversial premise here, but I want to start with it. And starting with it means, and you don't have it in your sources yet, we're going to get there, don't worry, there's, there's plenty of sources in your sources, we're going to get there. But I want to start with something that Maimonides said, or Maimonides wrote, 
about the responsibility to save a life on Shabbat, even by violating Shabbat. And in the context of talking about this, he writes that the people who do this, the people who violate Shabbat in order to save a life, should not be the people who know the least about Judaism. They should be the people who know the most about Judaism. In order to show, and this is what he says, Ha here you've learned, She'ein mishpitei ha-Torah nekama ba'olam. This is it. The laws of the Torah are not vengeance in this world. Ela rachamim v'chesed v'shalom ba'olam. The laws of Torah should be mercy and kindness and peace in this world. So by violating the Sabbath to save a life, as the most knowledgeable, as the luminary, you are sending a message, the Torah is not for vengeance. I am making it my personal goal, my personal aim for this year, 2022, 2023, 2024, to expose more and more and more American Jews to religious voices in Israel that are beating that drum. But I want to start with what we shouldn't do when we're trying to have religious dialogue and religious discourse. And here I am going to ask you to look at your sources, but I want to give you a bit of background. Okay? What we're looking at is the book of Jeremiah, the book of Yirmiyahu, which I actually think is as relevant politically, religiously, socially as it ever was, because the book of Yirmiyahu is essentially a prophet who comes to challenge people in what their society has come to look like, and instead of listening to him and hearing his message, the response is, you're a traitor, right? And there's a moment in this book that I think is especially prescient for anyone who wants to make an argument and an impassioned argument in support of their ideas that contrast others' ideas. And that is the phenomenon of the true prophet versus the false prophet. Can I ask you a question? How do you know if someone's a true prophet or a false prophet? How do you know? Maybe the false prophet tells you what you want to hear and the true prophet tells you what you don't. But let's be honest. We have many dueling prophets in American society in a more metaphorical kind of way. And I'm not sure they convince anybody other than those who already agree with them. And I want to look at one such moment in the book of Jeremiah where Yirmiyahu standing as the true prophet, he says, I want to disprove the false prophet. And they have a showdown, but nothing results in terms of people being changed. Take a look at number one. And I'm a big believer. I hope everybody's okay with this. I am a big believer in reading the Hebrew and translating. Okay? It's just there's an experiential quality to it, I hope. Okay? So we're on page one. Vayihi bashanahi bereshit mamlechet sidkiya melech yuda bashanah revi'it bechodesh hachamishi. So it just gave us the date. Okay? It's Sedekiah's reign, Sidkiyahu's reign. We're talking about almost the end of the first temple period. Amar Eli, Hanania ben Azur, Hanavi, Asher Migivon, Bevet Hashem, Leinea Kohanim, Vechola Amle Mor. On that date, in that time, there was a prophet named Hanania ben Azur who said in front of the priests and the whole nation came up to me, Jeremiah, and said the following. He says, 
And by the way, this always happens, this showdown always has to happen in public, right? It always has to be a letter to the editor, it always has to be a war, it has to be a, pu a public proclamation and a protest and a standing and a thing, which protests are very important. But I'm not sure they change anybody's minds, right? Which is a conversation that, that I want to have. He says, I want to proclaim, says Hananya ben Azur, and here's the background, that you, Yirmiyahu, are a liar. You've been telling the people all this time, you must do better, you must repent, you must create a godly society, and if you do not, then Babylon is going to take you over, and you're going to go into exile. You've been telling everyone that, says Hananiah ben Azur, but I'll tell you the truth. God said, God told me, certainty, always certainty, God told me that God has broken the yoke of Babylonia from upon us. So you're in the crowd. We've got one prophet who says, you need to do better. You need to work harder. There are challenges here. There are ethical problems, and these ethical problems are not going to fix themselves. And in, if not, we're in danger of losing our society to the Babylonian Empire. And then you have another prophet who says, God told me everything's going to be fine. Let's take a vote. Who do, to whom do you want to listen? Verse 3, Gimel. In two years, God told me, I am going to restore this place, the temple, all of the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, the head of Babylon, all of the vessels that he already took, they're all going to come back. The stuff he took me from this place, and he brought them to Babylon. And not only that, all the people he already exiled, they're all going to come back. It's a message of hope. It's a message of redemption. It's a religious message, no? Hope, redemption. Verse 5. So Jeremiah the prophet says, to Hananiah the prophet. Can't both be prophets, right? In front of all the priests, and in front of all the nation, who are standing in the temple. Jeremiah says, Amen. Amen, brother. Right? I wish God would do that. I wish God would do exactly what you're saying. I wish God would get rid of the Babylonians. I wish God would have all of these vessels come back. But listen, because that's not what's going to happen. Listen to this thing that I am saying in your ears and in front of all the people. The prophets who were before us, min haolam, going back forever. Those prophets who lived before us from ancient times, who prophesied war and disaster and pestilence. But a prophet who's going to prophesy peace, only when it actually comes true, that's how you're going to know that that person is a real prophet. Meaning you promising that everything's going to work out and it's all going to be fine, you're a liar. Until I see that happen, you're a liar. And the drama continues. Hananiah ben Azur comes back to him and he does, absolutely, you're wrong, you're lying, it's true, we're going to be fine. Right? To me, this is the danger of religious language to try to stake moral ground. The certitude, the certainty with which everyone simply self-evidently assumes things. I am the prophet and I tell you, you have to do better. I am the prophet and I tell you, everything's going to be fine. Who have you convinced? 
Who, this is not, now the strength of this, the power of the, it's rhetorically powerful, of course. And it lasts for thousands of years. We hold on to these texts because they're so rhetorically powerful, because they have such a clear-eyed sense of what's right. But did Yirmiyahu win? No. The end of this is Hanania ben Azur dies as a punishment for what he's done here. And Yirmiyahu ends up going into exile with the people. Everybody loses. Everybody loses. So one approach to, oh my gosh, look, the religious Zionist party created Ben Gvir is, I'm going to get up on my religious soapbox and I'm going to tell you what real religion is and their religion is false and my religion is true. And everybody who thinks I'm a true prophet is going to think I'm a true prophet. And everybody who thinks they're a true prophet is going to think they're a true prophet. And we've done nothing but made ourselves feel good or left a legacy for history to see. Now, I don't think, God forbid, I don't think Yirmiyahu was doing anything to make himself feel good. Over and over again, he protests. He said, people are going to hate me. People are going to hate me. I don't want to do this. But there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way, and this is just deeply personal, there's got to be a way that this does not become a war between liberal Jews and religious Zionists. There's got to be a way. That is why I'm here. <laughs> there's got to be a way. And so I'm looking for that way. I'm looking for that way for the good of the Jewish people, for not giving up on the Jewish people, and I'm looking for that way for the good of religion itself. And so I'd like to show you two exemplars, I think. I don't agree with everything that each of them are doing, but what's fascinating about them, and this is not like a pitch, go support these people's work, that's not. What they're doing is they are doing the hard day-in, day-out work of alternative religious education. They are writing, they are teaching, they have students, they have movements, and they're not, you know, they're not at the front of a, a, of a protest. They're in the front of a classroom. They're spending time slowly making the case. And I want to see those examples tonight. Because as you said, Rabbi Garden Schwartz, if you are invested in Israel, it is not an investment for the next five years. It is an investment for the next 50 and 100 and 200. And a Ben Gvir does not get elected because people have suddenly become fanatics. He gets elected because the education that they have is not telling them don't elect him. It's where we are in the United States also, by the way, and in many Western countries. And so I'm here to plead on behalf of transformative education. Example number one. His name is Rabbi, Yaakov, Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Nagen. I'm a bit of a fangirl, I'm going to be honest, in sort of like sort of the most shocked of ways. This person lives in Otniel. He lives over the Green Line. He is uh, an educator in yeshiva, in yeshiva at Otniel. He is very involved in interfaith um, endeavors globally, actually. And he, has, he lives a few blocks away. Remember that story about Daphna Meir, Allah Shalom, that woman who is a mother of six, who a uh, terrorist came into her house and stabbed her and she held the knife in her so that the terrorist couldn't take it out and kill her children. Do you remember that story? It's his neighbor, okay, a few blocks away. So a person who lives with the realities of the danger that could easily push someone in a direction that we sitting in the comfort of Boston or New York would say this is a terrible direction and a dangerous direction, but could be hard to see from close up. And it is from just the mouth and the pen of such a person that he is pushing for a different religious discourse from within his own religious Zionist community. He is an in-group moderate, and we need him terribly. Even if the purity test doesn't work, because I guarantee you, somebody who's living over the green line, no matter where, 
is not going to meet the purity tests of every liberal person in America, right? But that's what it means to support an in-group moderate, to be able to say it's not just my profit versus your profit, it's how can we work together in order to push for change from within different sectors. So here's the example. He wrote a book with two other people, Sarel Rosenblatt and Asaf Malach, Asaf Malach who actually worked at Hartman um, Israel for a while. And they wrote a book called Ushmo Echad, and God's name will be one. And the subtitle of the book is something along the lines of um, the, the healing or the repair of the relationship between Jews, Judaism and other faiths. And I want to look with you for a moment at the introduction to the book. It just came out, and it's only in Hebrew currently. That should also tell you something. Who is his audience? His audience are his peers in Israel. He's making an argument to them, and the book will be on their shelves, and they will read it, and they will learn it, and they will quote from it, and that will change something. Let's take a look at number two, okay? And you will already recognize things that are similar and different than the way that some of us in this room, or maybe most of us in this room, think. But that's what gives it its integrity. Bagalut, in exile, he's talking about us. In exile, Hatzorech hakiumi shel Yisrael, the Jewish people's existential need, was not to assimilate among the non-Jewish world and not to disappear. And for this, sometimes that meant that separation and alienation towards the surroundings were needed. Now, already he's talking about a situation. How would we describe, would we describe the situation that we have Jews in America as alienation and separation from our surroundings? Not really, right? You can already tell he's coming from a more conservative background, where what he's looking at is if he were living here, he would be more involved in a, a, a less outwardly engaged kind of life. And he says, well, let me explain why. Dafka be'eretz Yisrael, specifically in the land of Israel, kasher anu betuchim yoter mitzmi'ah, when we are safer from assimilation, we can live through a vision and we can talk about and be engaged with the place of the Jewish people in the great story of humanity. His argument is do not allow Israel to become the biggest ghetto in the world. Israel is the place that allows me, a very traditional person, he says, to be able to ask, who are the Jewish people in relationship to everybody else? What is our relationship to humanity? How can we think more expansively? I'm going to continue in English in number two. We must look with fresh eyes, he says, at legal questions and thought regarding the relationship between the Jewish people and the nations. These questions were sometimes neglected in exile. Or in discussions about them, the positions and interpretations that raised the walls between Israel and the nations were emphasized. Walls that were necessary, as mentioned, in order to facilitate the existence of the Jew in exile. He says, I know, I know the literature that I inherit. The rabbinic literature that I inherit tells me build walls, build walls, build walls between Jew and the other. He says, but... I'm now in a position where that doesn't have to be my emphasis. Metaphorically, we might say that we have tractate Avodazara, which tells us how to stay away, which is preoccupied with avoiding bad and separation from the nations. But the tractate of Orla Goim, a light unto the nations, which is preoccupied with the positive and appropriate relations, relationships between Israel and the nations, has not yet been written. This is an incredibly radical thing to say for where he comes from. And this is what he's trying to do in this book. He is trying to write a book that can give a universalist approach 
to what it looks like to live in a Jewish redeemed world. That Jewish redemption is not about me, myself, and I hunker down particularism, nikama, vengeance in the world. That Jewish redemption is actually about now we can repair those relationships. And so let's do that. Now he does something so wild. I have, I was, I had to read it twice. I had to read it twice. I, I went back, I said, he didn't write that. He wrote that. Take a look at number three. These are verses from the first book of Melachim, the first book of Kings. And by the way, just as an aside, I know that a lot of times when Hartman comes to town, what do we try to do? We try to say, what can you tell your kids and your grandkids? I know. I know that right now telling kids and grandkids is very hard. And I know that what we're doing right now is not something where you say, oh, by the way, great news. Somebody who lives over the green line in Israel is doing something really good for religious Zionism right now that's kind of going to counterculture and it's going to take about 50 years, right? That's not what this is for. This is actually for thinking, how do we think in long horizons, okay? And I, I admit that. I freely admit that. And this is my fight. This is my fight, and I'm going to bring it everywhere, okay? This is what he does. First Melachim. And don't worry, there'll be time for questions and arguing and all the things, okay? Says, if a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a distant land for the sake of your name, this is talking about the temple, Solomon talking about the temple, that people will come to the temple from everywhere, for they shall hear about your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come to pray towards this house, the temple, God, you should hear their prayers here in your heavenly abode and grant all that the foreigner asks of you. Thus, all peoples of the earth will know your name and revere you, as does your people, Israel, and they will recognize that your name is attached to this house that I have built. Okay? That's some verses in Prophets. Very beautiful. This is, this is something. If he, if he did this here, he'd get excommunicated in the community that he's from. But maybe we'll, we'll strike that from the tape, but he does it. Which is the fact that all three monotheistic faiths lay claim to Jerusalem. Is this a good thing for religion or a bad thing for religion from a Jewish perspective? I'm going to take, your, take, take a show of hands. Do you think it's a good thing for religion, for Judaism even, that all three monotheistic faiths lay claim to Jerusalem? Think it's a good thing? Could you raise your hand if you think it's a good thing? Great. Who here thinks it's not a great thing? Um, somebody who here thinks it's not a great thing, I would imagine that part of the issue is, I don't know if anybody's noticed clashes on Temple Mount, the Temple Mount, that happens, right? Not, Jews not being allowed to pray on the Temple Mount, that happens, right? So what he suggests is he says, you know, if I'm going to be stuck in this moment of politics, I'm going to look at this competition between Jews and Muslims, because that's essentially what we're really talking about, I'm going to look at this competition between Jews and Muslims for the Temple Mount, and I'm going to say this is horrible, this is a terrible thing for Judaism. It's bad. It's competition. We can't pray there. We can't. And in fact, that's what most of his community does. And he says, but wait, don't we have verses in our Bible that says that the dream is that everybody wants to come to this place and pray to God here? That isn't... It's what? So he says, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be distracted from what the long-term vision is that all peoples of the world should be together in prayer by the fact that right now we haven't been able to do the peace part of it yet. So let's work on the peace part of it. That's, that's brave. It's brave. It's a religious approach and not just a political reactive approach. One of the things they do in this book is they basically look through Jewish history, like the last 2,000 years, and you know it should tell you something that one of the people they include, I think it's among eight, eight thinkers, is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, who lived about a minute ago, right? And they're looking through 2,000 years, and they're trying to find traditional Jewish rabbinic thinkers who have said positive things about other religions and their roles in the world, but doesn't stop them. It says, here are eight figures. Read them. Learn them. Think about them internalize them, assimilate them into your religious ideology because they've been with us all along. They've been the minority opinion and now we need to make them the majority opinion. And to me, that is, that is a coherent 
religious argument, which is to look back into our texts and say what voices have been there all along that have been relegated for whatever reasons, and how can we make those the majority voices now? because they didn't become the majority voices because they were better. They became the majority voices because that's what was needed at the time. And now something else is needed. And that is one approach that he is taking, not self-evidently saying this is true, but doing the work of showing what people don't even know they have in their Aron Hasfarim, they have in their, on their bookshelf that they don't even know. That's one approach. This happens to be a person who is incredibly soft-spoken, is not going to be a person who would ever get on any sort of bullhorn. It's just not him. But the work that he's doing will bear fruit slowly but slowly because he's doing it in the idiom of his group, because he is trusted within his group, because he is not forcing people to commit to certain policies, but he is trying to educate them in a new way of thinking. That's one example. I want to show you another example. Another example comes from somebody who is a little bit more outspoken. Her name is Rabbi Leah Shakdiel. She lives in southern Israel, in Yerucham, and one of her claims to fame, and I want to, say, I want to make sure that I get this right, one of her claims to fame is that she was the first person to successfully appeal to the Supreme Court of Israel for the right of a woman to sit on the Yerucham Religious Council. And she became that person, 1988 to 1993. She is part of Oz Shalom, which is a religious peace movement. And she is also part of Tag Meir. People know what Tag Meir is? Tag Meir, which means an illuminating tag, is in opposition to Tag Mechir, which is a price tag. People who, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Perpetrate price tag attacks on each other. Jews on Arabs and Arabs on Jews. A price tag for this that happened, we're taking it out with this terror. A price tag at this that happened, we're taking it. Tag Meir goes and visits the families of those people who are victimized. Tag Meir, on Jerusalem Day, hands out flowers in Jerusalem to people of all faiths. Tag Meir began also as a religious initiative to bring illumination, to bring light. Rabbi Shaktiel also does the work of writing educational materials and teaching educational ideas and different ways of reading our texts. I think it was 2018. I was at the Mahon in Jerusalem. We had a group of Muslim leaders. We've been running this program called the Muslim Leadership Initiative for about a decade. We had a group of Muslim leaders who were in Jerusalem with us studying. My job was to give kind of a spectrum from within Jewish sources to give a spectrum on versions of peace. What might peace look like within Jewish texts? So you actually, you do have a spectrum. You have some peace versions that are kind of utopian, right? The lamb and the wolf, everyone's gonna lie down together and eat at wolf and lamb and do whatever they wanna do, right? But then you have things that are just, well, we just wanna be able to play in the streets. It doesn't have to be so perfect. And one of the texts that I had on the sheet was Deuteronomy 20. Now, Deuteronomy 20 is their verses about war. And from a biblical perspective, they're actually really morally progressive within the ancient Near East. They start with, if you're going to lay siege to a place, you have to offer peace. That's, I mean, in the ancient Near East, that wasn't a thing, <laughs> right? That's morally progressive. And if the people tell you who you're going to conquer, instead of conquering them, they say they want peace. So they're going to be, essentially, I'm going to say demi-status. They're going to be secondary status, right? That's what it says. 
It's the Bible. It's a long time. It's the Bible. So one of the participants, I see he's, it's like turning red. He's it. And I said, yes. And he raised his hand. And I, and I, I it's, it's very hard for me to even repeat what he said, but I'm going to repeat what he said. He said, um, I, I really can't do it. He said, I really can't do it because this is about Torah, and I, that's just not the way I talk about Torah. He said, this is an evil text. That's what he said. Now, for any, anyone who's known me, who's learned with me, you know I don't really suffer fools. It's not a thing I do, right? And so I said, how dare you? How dare you? I understand that you're a Muslim, you're on my turf, you're in Jerusalem, you're, how dare you? Would I ever say such a thing about a Quranic text that you were teaching me? I would never. This is my sacred text. It's been in my religion for thousands of years. How dare you? Now, the follow-up is that we're making now, Hartman is making a podcast to go back over through uh, what we did through the Muslim Leadership Initiative, what was our theory of change. And he and I just did a podcast about that moment and what we each learned from that moment, which was, that in and of itself was, I mean, it was just mind-blowing. But there is, there is a truth to the fact that the way that we read our texts does have an impact on how we act. And there is a truth to the fact that if your only option is I'm offering you peace and you'll give me peace, so now you're going to live under me as a secondary status. If that's something I was going to try to do in the 21st century, well, that's not going to work. And I don't mean that's not going to work practically. I mean, it's not going to work morally. It's not going to work ethically, right? He said it in a way that I would never say. I could. But I want to tell you another moment. Also with the Muslim Leadership Initiative, it's always when you see your own text through somebody else's eyes, you have to ask yourself, well, how have I been filtering this? How have I been thinking about this all these years? It was a terrible, terrible week in Jerusalem because of clashes, and I don't know if that's the real reason, but because of clashes at the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount was closed. The Muslim Leadership Initiative had just gotten to Jerusalem that day or two days before or something, and usually what they do is Part of, the, part of the justification of going is I can go to the Temple Mount, and they couldn't. And my job, day one of their uh, uh, cohort experience, my job was to teach about Jewish ideas of chosenness. And I was like, is this a setup? Trying to get me fired? What's happening? And I started talking to them about different ideas of chosenness, because you do have two basic on the spectrum of Jewish ideas about chosenness. In traditional literature, you do have kind of the following spectrum. You have Rabbi Yehuda Levi, and Rabbi Yehuda Levi is going to be like very inherent differences between Jews and others, right? He's a mystic. That's what mystics do. They find the table is different than the chair, meaning in its essence, and I'm not, I'm not saying that lightly, meaning it's a mystical approach to things. Maimonides, on the other hand, has a very different approach to chosenness, which is here are your duties. You are, you are chosen to choose, right? And I'm just teaching them this, like, here's what we have. And somebody raises her hand and she says, well, how does this impact the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And I said, what do you mean? She said, how does the way a Jew thinks about chosenness impact the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And I was like, that, it is shocking to me that I've never thought about that because I take Maimonides' approach so for granted. And then I started thinking about the fact that Rabbi Yudha Levi is actually quite popular in Israel, in schools, quite popular. And it dawns upon me that if you look at chosenness as an inherent difference between Jews and others, that will impact the way that you deal with others. This is not rocket science. So one of the things that Shakdiel wants to do is she wants to look specifically at those verses in Torah, in Bible as a whole, and ask, what about those verses that if you did them today, you would end up electing Ben Gvir? Because that's what we're talking about. 
And so her Dvar Torah, her weekly Dvar Torah, it's, just, it's on the internet for anybody to see, no matter what community they're in. Her weekly Dvar Torah on that Parsha, she gives us the following. Take a look at number four. And I want to start in the second paragraph on number four, which starts on the top of page five. Okay? She says, look. Hamilchama mitztayeret batorah kimesima merkazit. War is portrayed in the Torah as a central mission. Haomedet bifnei hador elav medaber Moshe ba'arvot mo'av. That is standing before the generation that Moses is talking to here. War is their life. It's not... You can't whitewash it. They're going to go into Canaan and they're going to make war in order to get this, uh, uh, in order to get this land. And not only that, the next generation's war was going to be a reality of theirs as well. Nonetheless, she says, we can take pride in our Torah. Hamakpida which makes, which is careful, that tries to distinguish between different kinds of war, what's a just war and what's not a just war. And various limitations that it sets up within war. Even within a perspective, even within a perspective, even within a perspective that normalizes war as this is part of life, you have to understand what it is in its moment. In its moment, it is actually asking people, be better, be more ethical, within something that would not pass a purity test for us today. It would not pass a purity test for us today. And so she writes, the fundamentalists, and I would, of course, prefer that instead of talking about the people who are fundamentalists, we talk about fundamentalist ways of reading. I would generally prefer that. I don't think it does much to call people fundamentalists, but I also don't live under the conditions that she lives, being an opposition voice within her own group. Okay? The fundamentalists who are among us, they are content they are content to apply the guidance of the Torah to our times with no, with no changes. Psukim kigon verses like you shall completely destroy them. don't allow anybody to live. don't give them a, a place in the land. These are all verses in the Torah, in the Bible. She says, Psukim Ela, skipping to the next line, the end of the third line. Psukim Me'en Ela, these kinds of verses, Mishamshim Hashra'a Ruchanit, Vahamratsala these end up being the inspiration, the inspiration for certain religious groups, Hatstakala Alimut, validating violence. Validating violence. These verses are used by people to validate violence. And so she says in the next paragraph in the English, but I want to strengthen the voice that opposes such a fundamentalist reading of the Torah by relating the written Torah to the oral Torah, the writings of our sages of blessed memory. I will focus on the Midrash of Devarim, Deuteronomy Rabbah, about a third of the rabbinic explications of this Torah portion, the Torah portion that's talking about war, are about peace and praising peace. The rabbinic move, she says, and then she goes and she quotes them all. The rabbinic move on verses like this, the rabbinic move, these are terrible, these are, no. That is not the rabbinic move. The rabbinic move is continuity. How are you going to make continuity out of texts that if you applied them today would really be dangerous? So what do they do? They just extol peace and extol peace and extol peace. And within extolling peace, and you could read it on your own later, I'm much more interested in your questions and your comments. Within verses about extolling peace and, and passages about extolling peace, they even talk about a suggestion that God tells Moses to go to war and Moses says, no, I'm not, I won't. And God says, you know, you taught me something. From now on, before you go to war, you always have to offer peace. Shocking. Radical. 
And so she says, you know what we need? We need some rabbinic approaches to thinking about our texts. What do rabbinic approaches do? Rabbinic approaches ask, how can I take the pieces of this that I need and want to inspire the way that my society looks now and bring them out? So instead of focusing on, and if you go to war, this is what's going to happen, or if they make peace, you're going to make them into a secondary status, what do the rabbis focus on over and over and over again? Offer peace, offer peace, offer peace. Until they even say that peace is the same as strength. And that's ultimately how she ends. You cannot have strength without peace. You think you have peace by having others underfoot? They're just getting ready to get rid of you. That's not strength. That's temporary. The only way you truly have strength is peace. And that's why they call their movement Oz Shalom, strength and peace. Because you can't have one without the other. Now this voice that she is offering is a voice that is not going to harangue against verses in the Torah. It's not going to be a voice that says, my, my camp is terrible, religion is terrible, look at what religion does to the world. It's a voice that says, how can we have responsible religion? What does responsible religion look like? How do you read the verses that we're going to hear in the synagogue? How are we going to read it and say, this is what I take from it and this is what I don't? It's a liberal reading practice. That's what it is. It's a liberal reading practice. But she's doing it. She's using Judaism as an interpretive tradition for, is for Israel and for Israeli society. So she's my second example. I want to find dozens and dozens more like these people. And I want to help them. And I want to give them audiences. And I want us to connect up to them in one way or another to know that there are a lot, a lot of ways that the Israeli ecosystem is going to change. Some of those ways are going to be protests. Some of those ways are going to be financial. Some of those ways are going to be political pressure. Some of those ways are going to be maybe making some headway in terms of people feeling secure in Israel, right? There are going to be lots of ways, but it's never, ever, ever going to change without the ideas and the perspectives of those who belong to the groups who right now are feeling so beleaguered that they went for an Itamar Ben-Gvir. It's never, ever going to change without them, ever, ever. And that, to me, is much, much, much harder work. I want to end on a note of, this gives me hope. It does. It doesn't give me hope for next week. But it does give me hope that there are people who are writing, that there are people who are teaching, and that people are accessing these things. And that it's not just a soapbox, but it's actually a process of education. And so at Hartman, we're doing our own process of education. I mean, you listen to Micha, you listen to Tal, you listen to Masua, you listen to Daniel, you listen to Yehuda. That's what we're doing. We're just educating the slow, methodical, daily work of education. And it takes a lot of commitment to be in that for the long haul. I'm going to pause there and take comments. And of either of those books being translated into English for us. So it's interesting. I'm actually talking to people about translating uh, Rev Nagin's book. Yeah. And Dr. Shaktiel, Rabbi Dr. Shaktiel, she spent time actually at Berkeley a little while back. I don't know if her writings have been translated. I've never met her, but I've been seeking. And I hope to meet her when I, either when I go to Israel in December or when I go to Israel in the summer because it's, it's a must. It's a must. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a must. Thank you, Lillian. Other questions? Oh, we have somebody. Yes, Israel. Oh, that's a perfect name for the question. <laughs> Would you like to come up here? In Israel, those of us who vote in Israel face a, a, stra a tension that you've alluded by mentioning the two elements that marked attention, but it's difficult to solve it when you come to a voting, voting, voting booth which is the, the stress, the tension between the very short term and the long term. All these ideas, of course, I, if I'm here, it's because I, 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 I think like you. But when I go in front of a voting booth, those ideas, do they help me? How do I vote? And that's, I don't know if you have any 
answer to that. So I think here's, here's a question that I have, which is what happens to, um, what's the process by which the voting choices emerge, right? The only way certain choices of you could vote for this one or this one, the way that they emerge is that there's a sense that society will bear those people and is okay with those people being on the ballot. And what I wanna see is I wanna see, I wanna go back to where Itamar Ben-Gavir is not an option for the ballot. And to me, that's a process of education. And that's why it's a long haul, right? The idea of knowing that, nah, it's, it'll get through, he'll get through. It'll be fine, he'll get through. Even as right now, 60%, of Israelis are saying we're worried about democracy. And those are not just the people who didn't vote for Likud, they're the people who did vote for Likud, right? There, there's something about how you get, how we got here in the first place, right? And that's the piece that I think relates to education more than once the possibilities are in front of me. Because I think it's very, very hard to tell someone, especially who's worried about security, oh yeah, don't vote Likud. Don't vote Likud. But they're worried about security and Likud. That's, that's the me, right? But it has to be before that, I think. Well, I'm going to take the privilege of the last question and then invite folks who want to talk to you individually to, to do so. Could you, as you were presenting your uh, poignant texts, and I just so love and applaud your instincts and those of Hartman, thank you. Um, I was thinking about... Um, our struggles in our own country here with extremism from the right. And I was thinking about the difference between 2016 and the midterms we just had last month. And I'm wondering what parallels, if any, do you see in the loosening of our own Ben Gavir in this country um, from 2016 to now and what's happening in America? Because surely it was not thinking from the left that changed that, it was thinking from within and I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on that. Yes, first of all, I can always count on you, Rabbi Garden Schwartz, to ask the question. I mean, ever since I met you, um, I, here's what I would say. Obviously, we all look at things through our own lenses, right? So my lens is a very American lens. And we definitely saw, and this is not about Republican versus Democrat. I, I want this country to have a robust argument between Republicans and Democrats. Let's not forget which was the party that ended slavery. It wasn't the Democrats, right? It wasn't the Democrats. So I actually think it's very important to have a robust two-party system, maybe more than two parties, but that's a different conversation. But I think what we saw in the midterms is the work of slow, methodical messaging and community organizing, not just soapboxing, right? We saw that work bear fruit that people are not looking for those who want to go beyond the boundaries of what's decent, right? And it was close. <laughs> it wasn't exactly like a landslide that we're talking about here, but it does tell you something about what it means to be in something for the long haul. And all the work that went on behind closed doors to make, to make these things possible. Right? And all the education to make things possible, the alliances that people may not even want to admit that they had in order to make these things possible. And that's why I think this, the Yirmiyahu and Hananya Ben Azur, yeah, it, it's, it's, it, that's the news. You know what I mean? Like that's what's out there on the news. And this one's going to watch MSNBC and this one's going to watch Fox. But we're not going to get anywhere unless there are people from within each of those camps working with each other. It's just not, it's not going to happen. I think we just saw it very powerfully here. Well, I'm so going to just you. close by thanking you for the decency that you role model, embody, and inspire. Thank you so much a lot. Thank you. Pleasure. My goodness. And folks are invited to uh, stay and schmooze. Uh, and uh, by the way, come to Hartman this coming summer. What are the dates, Amy Klein? Uh, Emily, tell us about Hartman this summer. All right, so if you liked this, um, while the path to finding a middle ground and 
Progress from within might be slow. Hartman in Boston is anything but. Um, So starting on this Sunday, December 18th, only on Zoom, Micha Goodman will be speaking about doing kind of a debrief of post-elections here exclusively for this community, but it's also can, the the Zoom link can be shared. We'd love to have a great audience. Um, In January, in this very room, Rabbi Justin Pines will be coming from Hartman, titled Inside Out, Self-Knowledge and Our Understanding of Israel, which is talking about our value, stories, and character that can play when we think about Israel and looking specifically at the literature of the Musar movement, which is pretty unique to Boston and it's like love and excitement. And please join us at CLP this summer. And there's more information about that um, on Sunday, January 8th in the Benjamin Vestry. Thank you all so much. Thank you.